Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And as always, um, I am talking to someone about their experience running for office, being in office, and hopefully encouraging you to as well. If you've listened to the past, you know I've talked to someone from every single state plus Washington, D.C., all levels of government, from borough council like myself and school board, all the way up to U.S. Congress and Senate. So every office matters, uh, and you can't make a change unless someone good like you, if you're listening, hopefully you're good, um, decides to run yourself. Today, I am excited as a fan of many things, I'll just start that way, uh, to have a guest from Knox County, Tennessee, um, and get their perspective on things. It's uh, something I was kind of eagerly anticipating. Um, might not be who some of you might think it is, but it is my new best friend, Representative Gloria Johnson. We're going to talk about uh, her life in politics, and hopefully you will um, maybe be scared into running yourself. Uh, so Gloria, thanks for talking today. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I think it's wonderful. I spend a lot of my time encouraging folks to run for office, um, you know, I, I especially like women to step up. We've got a only 16% of our legislature in Tennessee is women. So I would like to see some more women step up, uh, especially. And it sounds bad when you put it that way, 16%. And it is, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But yeah. there's only one state in the entire country that has majority female legislature, and that's Nevada. Right. You know, what... What does that impact mean both to, you know, women and men if you had a majority as well as maybe when they see that they are such a minority in government, not represented? Um, is it hard to get good people to run because they feel like, well, I'm not going to – it's going to be too challenging? It is sometimes hard to get good people to run and, and a lot of time with women it's funny – you ask a, a, a man to run for office a lot of time. Yeah, I can do it. I'm sure I can win. And you ask mm -hmm. a woman, um, and she's typically, well, you know, do you think I can get the votes? Do you think I know enough? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that sort of thing. And um, we just have to get more women used to the idea because what we typically see is um, we see more uh, legislation that affects families when we have more women in office. We see more collaboration on legislation. Uh, typically, studies have shown that as well. Um, I just really think, you know, in, in the state of Tennessee, women make up more than 50% of the state. I want our legislature to look like our state. Mm -hmm. You know, I want all types of people, not just wealthy, you know, and I want everyone to be represented. And I want, if it's representative of the state, we should have more women. And we've had a couple of instances uh, across the aisle with a couple of Republican women legislators who were basically taken out by their own folks, one because they didn't like her vote on guns, and the other one because she was a pro-choice Republican. And um, to me, that's frustrating. I think that women across the aisle would stand up more if there were more of them and felt like they weren't constantly in danger of losing their seat. Well, and but, that brings me something I was thinking about to talk to you and others about with running, being in office is you mentioned two Republican women who you probably liked serving with. You can like Republicans and Democrats and independents in office. So there's like, three, yeah, yeah. there's like three independents in every, in the whole state legislature of the country. Right? <laughs> but, um, you know, as someone who wants to pass certain legislation, 
Um, you don't want to be defending people on the other side of the aisle, potentially. I don't, um, but you also don't want those people to lose. That's, that's an awkward workplace dynamic, isn't it? Well, it is. It's, it's, you know, I can tell you a whole lot of things about how we literally have, because we have a super majority, um, we have a bullying super majority. Mm -hmm. Um, I am currently the only member who doesn't have a member office. They converted a closet, basically a small conference room, because I was the sole member who voted against the speaker. Um, and I'm not voting for someone who doesn't share my values, who wants the bust of a uh, the first KK Kran wizard who killed hundreds of surrendering soldiers in the Civil War and um, was a slave trader, made millions in the slave trade business. We had a bust of him in our capital in an honorary spot. We were trying to remove that bust, and our speaker was in favor of keeping that bust in a spot of honor in our capital. I, I'm not going to vote for, for that. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. So, and so I am being punished by him by not getting a regular office like all 98 members besides myself. So I, we've only been talking for like three minutes and I already am a big fan. Um, <laughs> I mean, not that I wasn't before I reached out to you, but you know, it reminds me of this, this politeness in politics, right? Like we just had the, um, the national softball game between the Democrats and Republicans. And like, mm -hmm. to me, it's, oh, that's really nice that they can do that. But six months ago, those people were trying to kill you. Like literally there were people trying <laughs> how, right. But when you, not you, but like if I was representative, um, you know, Bill Foster or Bill Smith in Tennessee, um, and I was a Democrat, and I voted in favor of that person because of the horse trading stuff that goes on in politics, doesn't it validate something that you wouldn't want personally to validate? So other people be like, well, Republicans and Democrats said that was okay. Yeah, I mean, it's very frustrating to me. Uh you know, I don't want to answer for my for my colleagues, but to me, someone who's kept Medicaid expansioning expansion from happening in our state for eight years does not deserve my vote for speaker. Mm -hmm. And and so, if you act, you know, they feel like, oh well, you know, it shows that we're. It, it's hard for me. I, I can't speak for other people. I just know for myself, and I can guarantee you that if roles were reversed. Mm -hmm. He would not have voted for me <laughs> if I was up for speaking. And I'd be okay with that. Right. Because I wouldn't expect that. You know, as I said, you know, if he was in Congress, he wouldn't have voted for Nancy Pelosi. Right. And and it's just like this idea that we should expect to all get on board for the same person. No, quite frankly, I'm either, if if the Democrats don't run someone, I'm going to abstain. You know, I mean, that's just the way it is. And and I was the single person who abstained or didn't vote for the speaker. And and I'll do it every time if it's somebody who doesn't share my values and the values of my district. And I feel like those values are separating more and more in a lot of ways, especially on things that probably to you and to me should be non-negotiable. Like, you know, who is the president? And, yeah. you know, Silly thing. it's... <laughs> Um, it's funny in a way, but, you know, I look at it, things in every state. I, I do advocacy stuff in Pennsylvania. There are Republicans who I have not disliked. I'll just put it that way at the very least. Like, that's yeah. a good, 
good people. I would be sad if they lost, kind of, because, you know, I would want Democrats to win, but I wish, like, Democrats could have a majority, but with that Republican still in office type of thing and leadership. But they also perpetuated this very dangerous myth that's guiding a lot of dangerous rhetoric and um, actions by people who've taken over capitals. It, it feels like, again, I, I would feel nervous as a lawmaker validating that kind of behavior in any way. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really strange because I'm, I make sure that, you know, when I'm in the Capitol, when we're working, when in business, and, and all the time, I'm very professional, right. and I'm respectful, and I've never raised my voice, I've never yelled on the floor, any of those things, which m many of my colleagues on both side the, sides of the aisle have done, but I really make it a point, I think, that in representing my district, I should be professional, respectful, all of those things, and so I get along just fine. Now, you know, on social media, I do speak truth to power a mm -hmm. lot. And, you know, some people will say, oh, you know, I, I go too far. Well, if someone's lying, there's a good chance I'm going to call them a liar. I mean, that's just the way it is. I, I feel like if we've learned anything in the last five years is you've got to call this stuff out when it happens. And it's, it's never a personal attack, but it's always on policy or on statements that they've made. And it's very frustrating to my colleagues across the aisle, but I will call it out and I will call it out on the floor, but I'll always call it out in a respectful manner and not make it personal. And, and I, I know that sometimes, you know, like the baseball game you talked about, I'd, I'd, I'd probably do something like that. But as far as, you know, on a personal level, when it comes to certain, there's certain things I don't give. Mm-hmm leeway on racism you know anything any kind of hate speech and and all of that i'm i'm not gonna be around someone who does that stuff I, you know if i have to work with them i will work with them but you know on a certain level there's only so much you need to subject yourself to and and your district quite quite frankly because you represent that district and you know it's interesting i mentioned about like a workplace um, if you were, you're an educator, but if you were just like an educator working in either, um, a school or professional atmosphere and you went to work every day thinking that the majority of your coworkers or the people in charge of your workplace were perpetuating very dangerous, racist things, that would not seem like a very safe and welcoming workplace. That would be a place that would yeah. be controversial to the, but in politics, that's okay. Right. Right. It's it's really interesting that things that are accepted nowhere else are accepted in politics, you know, like you say. And some of the things, like some of the mail that they've sent against me and races where um, the last cycle they sent out a piece of mail that had me covered in blood, blood spatter Jeez. and said that I was a criminal and my friends were criminals. And that's because I participated in protests mm -hmm. with... Um, various groups. Uh, we had a people's protest that lasted 64 days outside the Capitol, and it was um, about the Nathan Bedford Forest bust. It was a group of uh, young black, mostly black um, students and others who wanted to have that bust removed. They just wanted to sit down with the governor and explain to him how that was so harmful to them. And we had, you know, uh, 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 theology student, lawyer, these were not bad actors, you know. Um, but, yes, I stood with them. 
And um, they said that I was, you know, friends with criminals and a criminal myself. Um, and they sent that out to thousands of people in my district. Um, and, and it's not true. But in, in politics, you can't really sue somebody over bad mail because they say it's political speech and whatever. Right. Like if the other person where I work full time, if the fundraising director or the IT director sent out a mailer to like my neighbor saying, Tony is a terrible, I'm like, why are you doing this? this is, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it is such a weird atmosphere that I imagine, you know, whether you're in a place like Tennessee or even in another, at a bluer state like Massachusetts, which is, mm-hmm. you know, different in politics. So maybe it doesn't happen as much there, but that could be something that's off-putting, especially like you're trying to recruit more women to run. Um, you want to get people over that hump to say, yes, that can be scary, but here's why it's still worth doing. Yeah, and that's one of the problems here because of we didn't really have a whole lot of negative politics in Knoxville until my race when they really started hammering me. Uh, I, won, I won in 2012. That was the first time I won, and it's it was a, a strongly Republican. It was about a plus plus 12 or plus 9 or 12 our district, and I won, mm-hmm. just by under 300 votes. Um, I became a very strong voice for public education at a time when they were trying to bring in all sorts of charters and vouchers. So in the next cycle, they, they on top of the money that I raised and my opponent raised, the um, school privatization lobby put in $250,000 on top of that. I lost by 180 votes. So it was close, so I decided to run the next year. Mm-hmm. They put in 700000 on top of wow. my opponent's money, and he beat me by 150 votes. And then the next year, which was 2018, um, I beat him by 2,500 votes. So perseverance pays off. Yes, and that's what, you know, people want, like, sometimes they run once and then forget about it, but, you know, especially if you're close, you know, if you're that close and you're in a district that's a Republican district and they spend that much money and you come that close, mm-hmm. you got to know you're, you're, you're getting close to it, you know, and so you have to, to get your name out there and those things, you have to keep at it sometimes. You know, nevertheless, she persisted. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes that we have to do that. And um, it's, I think campaigning is fun. I love to get out. I mm-hmm. like to get to talk to people, find out what they care about, you know, and kind of make them more aware of things that are happening in, you, you know, state government, local government, whatever you're running for, because everybody tends to vote in the big federal elections but they don't really realize that the the government closest to home is what affects you the most. Right. Yeah, I see that. And so bringing them into that process just makes it better, makes assures that we have better government for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, you're talking about the reasons you ran the perseverance, but it reminds me kind of in a different direction. Uh, When I talked with my, my Senator Bob Casey on this podcast, you know, when he ran for Senate, he was heavily recruited. He was obviously the best person to run. He ended up winning by 20 points against Rick Santorum, and everyone celebrated because it was he's great. Um, yeah. And then right now we have a Senate primary, and it's like people are like, who could win the most? You proved 
that you were a very credible, capable candidate that de Republicans, if they want to beat you, would have to spend a lot. Um, so who is, quote unquote, the most electable is different by state, by district. You may have then been the most the most credible person to run. For someone listening, do you think there's almost a responsibility to people if they are a strong person to run? You know, I don't mean like any sort of background, but just like they have the ability to win, that they should be really considering uh, running for office. Well, you know, I think they should because we need really good people to step up. And and typically when I'm looking for candidates, I look for someone like I was not involved politically mm -hmm. at all. I got involved with the Obama Obama campaign in 2008 because I wanted something different after eight years of George Bush. Mm -hmm. I got trained up in how to organize with the campaign and I just learned so much. And what it made me do was really look at locally what was happening. And then at the same time, about that same time, there was attack from our legislature on teachers' rights to have a seat at the table. They took away our collective bar bargaining rights. Mm -hmm. And that was just the thing that went, bow, you know, I'm, I'm running <laughs> because, um, and that's typically a lot of times for women, for everybody, but more specifically for women, when it affects something, you know, dear to you, then you're, you're more likely to step up. But I, I go to those traditional places like school leaders, community leaders, church leaders, not necessarily former elected officials. That's always a great place to find those candidates. But, but yeah, people who have are seen as leaders in their community um, and who are, you know, well-known and known for good things, you know, I, I, we need them to step up. Absolutely. Well, you saw that in Georgia last year where Reverend Raphael Warnock, um, he, church leader, uh, leader in his community, obviously well-known and respected. I think a lot of people thought, well, that's a very uphill climb when he first decided yeah. to be a candidate. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think he's now one of the best senators. He's not just like a Democrat in office or Republican office either. Like he is just a very capable leader. And you can see like not having elected experience does not necessarily mean you can't be great both in the legislature or in the U.S. Senate. Right. I mean, he's a force. He's out there helping other states and, mm -hmm. and doing all kinds of things. It's kind of like in our situation, we have a Republican governor who has literally damaged the state with his response to COVID. Yeah. And so for this upcoming gubernatorial race, we've got a uh, never before been in office um, urgent care physician who is stepping up to run. Mm -hmm. Because for him, he held the hand of so many people while they passed away you know, he said in one hand he held their hand, and in the other hand he held an iPad so they could see their family. And he said, I did that so many times unnecessarily that I have to do something. And so he's running for governor. Um, it's, you know, good people need to step up. And, you know, you, you talk about the people that step up, and I think Tennessee is actually a really interesting state. And you have been involved in politics there since you said, oh, wait. But I'm sure you've been voting since then. What do you remember before yeah. I get into the next question? Like, when was Obama when you first became politically aware? Were you always because you talk about George Bush and being uh, frustrated with that? Was there anything? Were you always just politically connected because of your work and life? I was always politically aware. I always voted, mm -hmm. but I wasn't. You know, I, I went about my job teaching school and did a lot of stuff after hours with with that and. Um, 
just doing my thing. But I moved temporarily to Denver, Colorado. And I lived there for three years and taught there for three years. And I had some friends who were more politically active. And that was the first time I got a yard sign. And um, it was uh, something about a regime change now. Mm -hmm. Bush. Mm -hmm. And and several of my friends had it. And I saw some of my friends being politically active. And that was the first time that I had really been around close friends with people who were actually politically active. And so, though I had always voted, um, that... You know, I'd never been involved in partisan politics mm-hmm. at all. And then working on um, on the Obama campaign, we had we just opened a volunteer office here. I had 700 active volunteers, and people came there, and we had 20 computers and people making calls. And the local party here was like, "Oh my gosh!" They had they had a tiny office with one guy with some printed out sheets that he made occasional phone calls, literally. And it was all the office was all more geared towards Hillary, there was nothing Obama in the office. Mm -hmm. And so we just started something different. And then the party recruited me to be party chair because of all the people that we brought in. Mm -hmm. And so then I started getting active in partisan politics, learning more and more. And, and then again, it's always those, those issues. Healthcare was an important issue to me. Yeah, um, it became more important as my sister lost her health care and uh, those kinds of things. But health care was a big fight for us. And, and so just learning about those things, how they affect everybody, the more I learned, the more I wanted to be involved. And um, it, it just became apparent that I had to step up. And you did that as a human being. And I say that because I feel like people forget that people in office are human beings, whether they are, (laughs) yes, they do. (laughs) whether they're liberal or conservative or whatever they are in between a people's politics are often not fully one or the other. And what defines liberal conservative is kind of wishy-washy. But as a human being, not as a legislator who's immersed in politics now, how often do you just get frustrated by the fact that you have seen, like you talked about your sister and probably your own life, the impact of, you know, worrying about your health care. And yeah. it seems to me like that's something like, okay, we should all get that. We should all be on the same, let's fix this. And yet, you know, the legislators across the country are going in a different direction. Yeah, it's a perfect example. Is um, State Innovation Exchange did a poll in Tennessee about several issues, issues that I have always supported and carried legislation for. Of course, Medicaid expansion is one making mm-hmm. sure that we're fully funding our public schools, not vouchers and charters. Uh, I've, I've started carrying legislation for paid family leave. Uh, it's a very conservative policy, but everybody loves it. Mm-hmm. Um, when they did the uh, poll on it, 83% of Tennesseans, both sides of the aisle, supported it. Mm-hmm. So with Medicaid expansion, it's 70% supported, both sides of the aisle. Uh, with our public schools, it's like 63%. It's But that's the way they worded the question. So public schools are generally, and funding public schools are generally more supported than that, but we know it's over 60%. Pay family leave, 83%. Um, uh, Cannabis or medical cannabis, 81%. Mm -hmm. So, um, and child care infrastructure, well supported, it's probably higher than that even, with both sides of the aisle. So they, they put you know, they 
target me as an extremist, liberal, unhinged. These are things they call me in their mail and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I am with the majority of Tennesseans on every single issue. And so the reality is they're the extremists. They're the ones that are saying no masks, no vaccines, attack the Capitol, and not condemning the attack on the Capitol. Um, But they're calling me extreme when I am in agreement with the vast majority of Tennesseans on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. It's so frustrating. And And, It's interesting to me also thinking about Tennessee as this was a state that, you know, you grew up and Al Gore was a senator there you know, the vice president from Tennessee. And, and then you had Republicans who were, who were rather moderate that, at least compared to today with Lamar Alexander yes. and... Howard uh, Baker, you right. know. And then today you have, you know, less than moderate, I guess you could say, <laughs> senators. You, know, you have extreme. a extreme difference from Bob Corker, who, you know, I wouldn't have voted for him, but he was someone who I would respect and listen to and seem to put thought into things and now it's like it's just memes and you know facebook talking points do you think that there's a good reason for that going so far so fast can it be reversed can things move in a different direction obviously you did in your district you were able to make a difference i think it can be reversed and we're we're seeing suburban areas get bluer and bluer Mm -hmm. um and it's, but what we're seeing a lot of Tennessee is the r- rural areas are getting redder. So for me, the the issue I see is I think we need to get better at organizing in rural counties. I think that that you know, I get frustrated sometimes with some folks who want to blame these people for voting against their interest. I believe that they don't really realize they're voting against their interests. Yeah, they're not dumb people. They're being they're spoken to by their Republican reps about the wedge issues mm-hmm. that they do care about, but they're not the issues that are kitchen table issues that affect their families. Mm-hmm. So what really affects their family is the fact that they don't have access to health care. The fact that they're working two and three jobs to make ends meet when we need to raise the wage. The Republicans will not talk about raising the wage. We'll bring legislation. They'll throw it down, but that's another one I meant to mention, mm-hmm. where both sides of the aisle want to raise the wage. Right. And so I think we need to really get on doorsteps of folks in rural communities and talk to them about those effect, those issues that affect their kitchen table and, and make them understand more of how the people that they're electing are not making their family's life better. And that, for me, is a, a critical piece in getting people to really understand the, what the folks they're voting for do. Another thing I always tell people, it's, it's just so glaringly obvious. If you go to the Tennessee Campaign Finance website, and like you open my campaign finances, you will see that each cycle I have hundreds and hundreds of donors mm-hmm. of regular amounts of money. You know, I have a few max out donors and a few, you know, uh, labor organizations, but I don't take corporate PAC money. Right. Um, There's no $750,000 check coming in here. (laughs) So, um, but if you look at my colleagues across the aisle, it's almost all lobbyists and PAC money. Almost Mm -hmm. all of it. You rarely find one that has maybe 10 to 15 donations from a normal person you know, it's it's almost non-existent. Right. 
And so who are they working for? They're not working for regular people if regular people aren't funding their campaigns. And, you know, speaking of regular people in those areas, how much of the the change in the tone of politics in Tennessee and, and in Pennsylvania, too, in very many parts of Pennsylvania, yeah, I, <laughs> where I am, how much of that do you think is due to lack of lo- strong local newspapers and media and people just getting all their information online or from cable news and crazy sources there too. Um, do you think that and is a do you think that is a big issue that you're seeing from the people that communicate with you in the legislature? Oh, absolutely. The the disinformation, misinformation, and there's a lot of ginning up of this idea. I'm, I'm seeing it more and more. I just got a horrific email yesterday in my state rep account mm-hmm. with this meme or just horrible stuff about, you know, we've got to take it back and, and, and this whole civil war idea, all of this stuff. And it's all being generated and it's, who knows where this is coming from. I mean, this, this particular, uh, graphic that, that they put on my page had the date written the way Europeans write the date with, uh, the day first and, and the month uh-huh. second. And so I'm like, now where is this? You know, where is this coming from that someone has sent me? Um, and and it's frustrating that people are saying, well, we're doing the research, but you're not using factual, trusted sites. I mean, you can find out really quickly that that site is really just a landing page. It's it's not a news site, right? And and so people are sharing memes and they're they're buying everything that someone else has sent them. And it is, it's really bad, and, and we're seeing it now with COVID, with all this. People say, oh, well, they, they found that masks are terrible for children, and I'll say, show me where those studies are. And they'll send me a study, and everyone's been debunked. Right, or there's not, like, a real person. Right, and it's just, like, it's so frustrating that people aren't using, using the critical thinking skills that they have or that they don't have them. I mean, it takes work. You've really got to look at your sources and know that you've got factual information. Mm-hmm. And and that takes work and time, which a lot of people don't have. And so that's why they accept that first thing that comes to them or is sent to them. And I, I tell people all the time, you know, we've got people in situations where they have to work two and three jobs and they don't have health care. They're trying to keep the lights on. They're trying to put food on the table. And... And they don't have time to dig into the news like I do or, or dig right. into this, to that like I do. And so how do we get them information? Because in a lot of our rural areas, folks are listening to talk radio, and there's no liberal talk radio in right. Tennessee. Or, or anywhere. To conservative talk radio, and they're listening to, you know, they might catch up an hour of Fox News at home, but, but their lives are, they're struggling. Right. And so how do we get the word and the information to those people and make them understand who's fighting for them and who is trying to make their family's life better? Well, not to uh, make light of fighting, but as a representative from Knox County, have you fought the undertaker or are you one of the only people in Knox County who have not? (laughs) I don't know how many. Are you an ECW champion ever? Like. You haven't won any of those. Well, yet. it's pretty funny because I'm 6'3". Uh-huh. That's and why you're so, standing tall. And everything. That's everything. <laughs> so Kane came to my office in, mm-hmm. in the legislature, and, uh, you know, we kind of 
did a little mm-hmm. thing. Um, but he's he's a mess. I mean, he's this. Our mayor is our wrestling mayor is a libertarian uh, ideologue. I, like he's not because he is not necessarily a party person, right? He is. Uh, very much an ideologue that's mm-hmm. his own iconoclastic ideas that go beyond setting Paul Bearer on fire that one time. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it, it's just it's ridiculous. He's also he's also a bully. Mm. You know, we had a female head of our um, health department, uh, Dr. Buchanan, great woman, wants community health. You know, she wants she's going to work hard to make sure her community's healthy. He and a fellow representative of mine created a video basically threatening the Board of Health. And they did away with our Board of Health. Wow. Um, through legislation in our state legislature that they passed. Um, and all that, you know, they keep saying unelected body. Boards are unelected. For reading. You know, they're not elected by the public, they're chosen by electeds. Because they're experts in their field. Right. And so we don't want elected, I don't want a wrestling mayor deciding my health program, you know? Right. I don't. I mean, that's ridiculous. I want doctors and public health officials making those decisions. Yeah. But they they were on and on about how it's an unelected body. That's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't go around like campaigning for like my kid's doctor, like my literal kid's. <laughs> I want kids health care, but not like I want Dr. Sorensen right. to be the one taking care of kids. And, and we've got these anti-mask parents standing up at school boards saying, I know best for my child. No doctor's going to tell me what's best for my child. I'm like, really? Because I bet a year and a half ago you took your kid to the doctor and you did what the doctor said. Right, and I'm really nervous from seeing state representatives on the other side of the aisle from in Florida and in other states now who aren't just going along with that crowd, maybe out of sincerity, maybe out of fear, because I've seen that in Pennsylvania where Republicans who you know may not really be that fringe but just are scared, right. they've been threatened, um, not just be like on their side for anti-mask mandates, but now going after other vaccine mandates that have been in the process for years. And the, the repercussions for that are very dangerous. It's every time somebody contacts me and says, I hope you're against vaccine passports. And I said, you mean your immunization record that you've had since childhood? Mm-hmm. You know, this is not some, there's no vaccine passport. You have an immunization record. You had to show it to get into school, to elementary school, to college, some workplaces. Yeah. You know, they're acting like this is something new and out of the blue, that's some tyranny. And it's just so ridiculous. I always bring them back to, well, you have an immunization record, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, so then then they kind of, some of them kind of do a double take. Some of them don't back down, but some of them are like, oh, yeah. I mean, I've actually talked to a couple of people who went, okay, I see what you're saying, you know. Yeah, I've so carried my son kicking and screaming to get a shot before. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and I'll do it again. <laughs> we're having a special session at the end of this month because I think that our governor wants to do what Texas just did, and um, they think that they can do something about the federal mandate, which I don't know. They just don't understand. We can't tell feds what to do, but that's what they're going to do. 
they keep they keep trying it. They hadn't stopped them before. We uh, pass lawsuits, not legislation, down here in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. But um, I can't tell you how many times this governor has gone to court with unconstitutional legislation, and so far he hasn't won. So here's what he did last session. They created a new sort of kangaroo court for his unconstitutional bills to go to, all in rural areas. So wow. it's very interesting. Well, yeah. It is interesting, and I think that it would be worse off if people like like you weren't there to bring attention to things, to bring light to darkness, and you know try and make things better as best you can. Obviously, you would encourage people to continue running, right, for 2022 and beyond. What would be your one message before I finish here that you would tell people if they're like, I don't know if I should run or not, it sounds dangerous now. Um, why would you encourage people to get up and run starting now? I think it's never been more critical um, that that good people run now because we are at a place. Do not let bullies keep you from doing what you know is right. And, and you know, I haven't, I don't really, have never totally, I've never felt unsafe. People say all the time, Gloria, aren't you worried? Uh, I'm careful. I'm smart. Um, I'm, that's not to say nothing could happen. But I'm just, I really believe that, the, that there are more of us than them and that if we step up, step up and stand up and speak truth to power, mm-hmm. we can stop this insanity, get back to truth and facts and caring about our community. We can do this. But it's going to take the good people to not be bullied, not be scared off by these folks, stand up and run, and be a voice for your family and for your community. That's a wonderful message. I agree with it. Um, lastly, before I go here and give, get you back to Fighting for Tennessee, um, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to maybe find out how they can be involved in Tennessee, where should they go to be in touch with you on social media? Absolutely. Well, you, my website is votegloriajohnson.com. Mm-hmm. That's very easy. But I'm super active on Twitter That's at votegloriaj. So votegloriaj is my Twitter handle. And then on Facebook, I've got my personal page, Gloria Johnson, but they only let you have so many and it's full. But my state rep page is State Representative Gloria Johnson on Facebook. Well, it makes sense why your personal page is full because who wouldn't want to be friends with Gloria Johnson? <laughs> uh Thank you so much for volunteering uh, your time today and for volunteering your time to be a candidate and make a difference in Tennessee. If you're listening, I hope you will consider running for office. Please look for past episodes from every state. If you have an idea for a guest, please email me, tonyheil at gmail.com is the best contact. Thank you so much, Gloria. I wish you the best of luck. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. And let's everybody get out there and run for office. We need you. Thank you.
Where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs, and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow, in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats, and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey, too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the turk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I'll see you all this coming fall in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I'll see you all this coming fall in the Big Rock Candy Mountains.